0: Paris, New York, Los Angeles, and now Seoul, South Korea. Welcome to the new global powerhouse in the beauty industry.
1: This essence has snail secretion filtrate, which, yes, is snail slime. <laughs> so the snail secretion filtrate is supposed to brighten, hydrate, and support skin repair.
0: That's Christina Arania, one of an army of YouTubers immersed in the world of K-beauty. And here's Charlotte Cho, walking viewers through her 10-step Korean skincare routine.
2: After cleansing, I
1: do use a exfoliator to slough off any dead skin cells. And I've been really into the Neogen Bio Peel. This is the green tea version.
0: There are oil cleansers, toners, essences, serums, moisturizers, ampules. the list goes on. In a video for Harper's Bazaar, K-pop star Somi demonstrates how she plasters a bright yellow mask on her face. You can tear it easily. There we go. Look at this. It's
1: yellow. So I'll be looking like a giant yolk,
0: but... She also uses a plastic device called a neckline slimmer. So you know this this part here, like this double chin you get, like if you're like this, like you you get this, you put this on your chest right here, hold it
3: nicely, gently, and you nod.
0: This is on point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. All of these beauty products help explain how South Korea has become the third largest cosmetics exporter in the world. Inside Korea, the beauty industry isn't just limited to products either. It encompasses standards for weight and for transforming every part of your body with plastic surgery. So how did the country become such a driving force in the global beauty industry? And what might it mean for worldwide beauty standards and how we even think of the concept of what beautiful is? And also, what impact is it having on Korean women now? Well, you know Elise Hugh from her work as an NPR correspondent and host at large. She also served as NPR's first ever Seoul Bureau Chief from 2015 to 2018. And it's that experience that inspired her new book, Flawless, le- Lessons and Looks in Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. Elise, I'm thrilled to welcome you to On Point.
2: Hey Magna, thanks for having me.
0: Well, first of all, I want to ask you um about again the experience that uh, that inspired the book because mm-hmm. I oftentimes I oftentimes feel that uh Seoul, South Korea these days going there is like kind of almost like walking into the future because it's so uh, economically, technologically and culturally developed. But what did you see when you began your, uh, your when you opened the Seoul Bureau for NPR in terms of beauty standards? What were you immediately immersed in? You're right it was like a video
2: game because it was so electric so alive you had skysc- skysc- skyscrapers reaching high into the clouds there was kind of pollution in the air there were there was just digital signage everywhere not just on tops of cars and on the sides of buses and in florida ceilings uh, window displays but also there's signage that digital signs that wrap around entire buildings and so much of that imagery is just full of women's faces and women's torsos and advertisements for products to fix ourselves. So there was a lot of before to after signage at the time I was there that has now been regulated a little bit more. And just makeup ads, right, skincare ads, the sense that it was possible to look like these aspirational images of women, or there was something that you could buy to get there.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, and there's also, there was a particular look to that, that aspiration, right? I mean, in the book, you call it variations on a prototype. So what was that? What is that prototype?
2: Yes, yes. It's that really glassy skin. It's poreless and usually quite porcelain white, um, a small nose, full lips, Um, a chin, you know, or a jawline that meets at a V, a very delicate feminine jaw, big bright eyes, and just long, luxurious black hair, typically. And then a very thin waist. The thinness in South Korea was a thinness that I hadn't encountered before.
0: Wow. Uh, You've previously talked about a really um, interesting and perhaps somewhat disturbing statistic about uh, BMI for uh, what teenage and um, and women in their twenties and thirties in South Korea and how it's followed a unique trajectory different than any other yes. developed country.
2: It, I think it's the only develop or only demographic. So women between the ages of eighteen and thirty in South Korea, following the year two thousand or so, so following the turn of the century, uh, they are the only demographic in the world that got skinnier, that got thinner. Um, even Korean men saw BMI increases, but the percentage of underweight women in South Korea jumped something like 60%. So it's pretty astonishing. And it happened around the same turn of the century time when South Korea became such a soft culture or soft power. And when I talk about soft power, um, we're talking about the spread of Hallyu, which is the Korean cultural wave, K-pop, movies, animation, games. And when South Korea became so big, when it when it came to these film and TV and visual industries, then it was also exporting images of beautiful Korean people. And as a result, Mm -hmm. the pressure on Korean people domestically to up their game when it came to
0: their appearances and aesthetics also went up. Wow. Uh, And i learned so much from the, your book, which was, were, was in, like, eye-opening, challenging, and it really got me sort of thinking about how we all treat ourselves as individuals, which we'll get to that uh, in, in yeah, a couple thanks. of minutes, Elise. But um, on, the, uh, on the thinness side of things, mm-hmm. I know you've talked about this before, but I w- I'd want people to hear how many sizes are offered to <laughs> Korean women when they go shopping <laughs> for clothes.
2: So you asked me
0: at the outset of this
2: interview what it was like for me when I got there. So yes, I did feel as though I stepped into the future. I also felt like I stepped back in time because my teenage self with all my insecurities in front of the mirror was triggered because constantly Korean strangers would say the quiet part out loud about my appearance. So they would point out that, you know, Botox is available now preventatively, you know, and maybe I could (laughs) get it around my mouth. Or they would point out that, you know, I have freckles. I'm aware that I have freckles, but I wasn't aware that it was a problem. Freckles are very frowned upon. And so I think I write something about how I might as well have had boils on my face, you know, because <laughs> because the freckles people just say, "Ooh, we could take care of that," and and I'll put a pin in that because there's more on that later. But then also, you know, I was postpartum twice. I had two of my daughters when I was in Seoul, and each time I was postpartum, I was presented with just a bevy of ways to deal with my postpartum body you know people would say to me there's slim wraps there's these diet teas you know there's diuretics (laughs) all sorts of things um, about my size and it mattered because there is kind of this 50 kilogram standard for weight which was astonishing Um, i think that is around 110 pounds and that's irrespective of your height and so in the boutiques, there's something called free size. And as we named a chapter, free size isn't free. Free size is a US size two. And so even at a size eight, I was considered large sized or plus sized. And it was nearly impossible to shop in any of the places with the cool clothes. So I experienced fat phobia, um, which obviously happens all over the world. It's just that the uh, thinness the The window of thinness is so narrow that there was yeah. far more fat phobia because I couldn't be straight sized when I was in East Asia.
0: And, and shopkeepers, what size would they offer you then?
2: Oh, no, I, it was just the big, the big hand Korean or the hand, um, X. So they would, <laughs> they would make an X with their <laughs> forearms. It's like, no, <laughs> We have nothing for
0: you. <laughs> oh my God. It's not oh very God. welcoming. Well, so can you tell me a little bit more? Like, give me an example of someone that you, you because um, you talked with so many people in, in writing this book, about the lengths that they would go to to try to achieve this, um, you know, variations on a prototype, as you said.
2: Yeah, well, increasingly the pressures of... Korean beauty or just the beauty culture are falling on men. And so one person who really stands out to me is a guy named Grumman. He went by Grumman as his YouTube name, But uh, his name is Kim Min-ki, and he talked about how he had a pretty average morning routine for a Korean man, and it sounded like it took three hours, Um, not only the multiple steps of skincare, which which require many products and moisturizing, but also he gets his face waxed and he goes in for Botox two or three times a month, or every two or three uh, months, and it was astonishing how many products and how much work and aesthetic labor he put in as a man and he was an excellent example of how increasingly as the beauty industry expands and as we live in a more virtual and visual society men are subsumed by these beauty pressures in the similar way to how women are
0: right okay so if men are feeling the pressure now it it makes it uh, that much more urgent to understand how Korean women have been feeling the pressure for years now, right?
2: Of course. Of course. And, you know, it's such an interesting summer to be talking about all of this because it's a summer of a lot of labor actions. I'm in Los Angeles where SAG-AFTRA has, is going to be out on the picket lines today. And in 2018, what I saw was a general strike against appearance labor, that's what I would call it. There was a movement called Escape the Corset, in which some 300,000 women who had spent all of this time and money and energy, psychic energy, on trying to meet these very exacting beauty standards decided not to participate in it anymore. And so they got online and crushed their compacts and cut their hair. It was really rather inspiring and astonishing to see.
0: Well, today we're speaking with Elise Hu. She's correspondent and host at large for NPR. Her new book is Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. And she's talking about the rise of uh, South, the South Korean beauty industry worldwide, but also its impact, I'm particularly interested on, on South Korean women. So we'll have a lot more on that when we come back. This is On Point.
3: Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com slash On Point today to get 10% off your first month. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Elise Hugh is with us today. You know her as
0: correspondent and host at large for NPR. She opened NPR's first ever Seoul Bureau, Seoul South Korea Bureau, in 2015, and her experience there has given rise to a terrific new book. It's called Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. Now, as we talked about in the previous segment, South Korea is now the third largest exporter of cosmetics worldwide. It's behind only the United States and France. So entrepreneurs Sue Green and Hera Nami are a part of that sort of worldwide explosion of K-beauty. They're Korean-American sisters and founders of the online store, Olali. And Olali is headquartered in Los Angeles, but only sells Korean skincare and products and makeup. So we wanted to talk with them about why they decided to launch their store. And when we finally were able to connect with them via telephone, it was appropriately at Cosmoprof, a big beauty trade show in Las Vegas.
4: We got all these samples that we're bringing back home, once again, our faces are going to be kind of irritated. (laughs) but We can't wait to try them
0: all. Olali was launched back in 2016. Sue and Hera say the business grew quickly through word of mouth.
4: About six, seven years ago was when K-Beauty really caught on and just kind of exploded. Yeah, every year we were doing like 300, 400 percent of growth.
0: Sue and Hera think that social media really helped put Korean products in front of a Western audience with influencers using Instagram or TikTok to walk through their multi-step skincare routines. Sue says the K-Beauty products themselves are also intriguing.
4: Interesting ingredients that you may not think of as what you would put on your skin. The classic K-Beauty ingredient, I would say that that's snail mucin. Um, Which is the the snail secretion that the little trail that snails leave? That is actually naturally high in hyaluronic acid, which is actually really good for your skin for holding on to and grabbing hydration.
0: Today, the Olali online store carries around 40 Korean brands, and the sisters test every one of the products they sell on their own faces. Sue's hopeful that what she describes as the store's highly curated selection and small business vibe will help them stand out in a very saturated beauty market.
4: So it has not stopped growing. Thank God. Yeah, it's really continuing that trend. People have really caught on to Caring for self um, via skincare is actually there's a lot of benefit to it. So yeah, it's been it's been great. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of growth.
0: That's Sue Green and Hera Nami, co-founders of the online Korean beauty store Olali, which is based in Los Angeles. Now, um, Elise, I wanted to ask you about something specific. We just heard them say that they were talking about how um, pursuing these um the the K-beauty ideal is seen amongst many as a form of like positive self-care is it seen that yeah. way in korea
2: in some circles absolutely yes and this is why the paradox of physical beauty was so fascinating to me as a reporter because physical beauty is a double-edged sword, it can be a vessel for self-realization and expression and care. It can be a way to nurture yourself and be nurtured by physical touch when you're talking about beauty workers and salons, for example. But on the flip side, there is an exacting nature when it comes to factory-issued or industrialized beauty standards, and that can be a hamster wheel. It can be a crutch to invest all our time and self, and it can often come at the expense of becoming a fully realized person. And so where is that line? Where do we draw the line in a society that's becoming so virtual and visual and when technology is offering so many solutions and inventing problems that maybe we didn't have. So this reminds me of the freckles I was talking about in the first segment, right? I didn't realize my freckles were a problem until I was presented with solutions to zap them off. So the fact that something existed to get rid of that problem then really amplified the notion that there was something that was naturally occurring in me that needed to be removed or needed to be fixed or needed to be upgraded.
0: Mm, a problem that didn't exist and suddenly a solution for it appeared. So right. interesting. <laughs> you know, the the um, I think one of the most arresting things about what you write in the book is the lengths that South Korean women in South Korea go to in order to try to achieve this you know, K beauty standard. We've been talking about the products and the skincare routines. I mean, there's also huge amounts of plastic surgery at pretty young ages, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the show. We spoke about weight. But you, you write that it's actually very economically rational for South Korean women to go to these lengths to uh, you know, for, for keeping up their appearance. Why?
2: That's right, because South Korea is a society where appearances matter more than they do in the United States. It's tied into your professional prospects and your personal prospects. Headshots are often required on resumes, and at least that was true until this was banned a few years ago, but it's still happening. People are still asking for photos on resumes. And this is for jobs ranging from accounting to, you know, government positions. It's not for modeling and acting. Your parents encourage you to get cosmetic surgeries so that you can do better in the labor market or get into tougher schools. Um, the dating market is uses the term specs in the way that we use the term specs for computers and other devices, they'll use the term specs on people. And your specs include physical attributes like your height and your weight and your bra size and your hairlessness. And so it is a hyper-competitive landscape, which makes it really rational to try and, quote unquote, work hard on your appearance.
0: Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, fe- it feels like women... Uh, I mean, did they talk to you about that they felt like if they didn't do these things, even if they wanted to, if they didn't, they they stood to lose a lot.
2: Absolutely. It was all about sort of the risk of losing their jobs or being taunted on the streets or bullied at school or being uninvited to family gatherings, which has happened to some of the Escape the Corset women I I mentioned earlier, who decided just not to participate in this appearance labor anymore. I remember... They spoke to me so movingly about how they wished that they could just exist <laughs> and mm-hmm. love and be loved as they are. This sense that you're you, I'm me, without the makeup, without this figurative corset. And they didn't feel as though that they could feel worthy without li- without actually appearing at least within the norms of conventional standards. So there is a real link between physical attractiveness and worthiness. And we're seeing that globally. There are now Mm -hmm. global standards and global pillars of beauty, according to social science research and ethnographic research. And they are thinness, firmness, smoothness, and youth. And this is for women primarily, that all over the world that, we are expected to strive towards these standards in a way that is becoming really
0: normalized and considered natural. Right. So this is why I just loved reading the book because you're, you're simultaneously talking not about South Korea, but also about what's happening around the world. It's just in South Korea, it seems like it's much more overt the link between, um, you know, appearances and these, these uh, beauty standards and the economic necessity of, of achieving those standards. So with, with that in mind, I want to introduce Miche- Michelle Cho into the conversation. She's Assistant Professor of East Asian Popular Cultures at the University of Toronto, and she's joining yeah. us from Seoul, South Korea. Professor Cho, Yay. welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: So so can you talk a little bit more about what Elise had mentioned earlier uh, about mm-hmm. this sort of almost um, organized effort that South Korea underwent after the Asian financial crisis to um, not only diversify its economy but use culture um, as a form of uh, of economic strength that led to this Korean wave that Elise mentioned called Hallyu.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I think that the lessons that were learned from the financial crisis were that you know globalization or finding customers finding markets for Korean products was imperative in a, mm. an increasingly volatile global market. And you know one of the ways that a small country can do that um, reliably <laughs> to kind of insulate themselves from the shocks that can occur from you know, interruptions to supply chains or the lack of uh, natural resources to build products for export is to think about culture as an export. And so um, after the 97, 98 financial crisis, there was a concerted um, kind of plan on the part of the government and spreading into other industries, culture industries in particular, to really focus on creating products for export that could appeal to audiences around the world. And so at this point, I think K-beauty and other aspects of K-culture are fruits of of those th- that way of thinking at the turn of the century,
0: mm. but I think you've also mentioned that K beauty as a term, which I've been using kind of very liberally throughout this hour already, actually emerged in North America.
1: Yeah, I mean uh, the K prefix that is attached to lots of things these days, like, you know, K-drama, K-beauty, even Um, Mm K-food. You know, this is something that uh, it only really makes sense if you're thinking about an external gaze. You know, Korean, Uh Korean consumers themselves wouldn't call... Um, beauty or cosmetics, beauty products or cosmetics, K-beauty, they just call them cosmetics, right? Um, But so with the the kind of rise of the Korean wave as a uh, sector of the economy, uh, specifically organized around cultural export, the K-prefix has become a sort of cultural brand. And so you hear that um, being used and now promoted by uh, cultural producers themselves in Korea.
0: Mm. Elise, I know you want to jump in here. Feel free to jump in any time because um, this, this this is like all of what your your book attempts to explore. So go ahead. No,
2: and Michelle is such an important voice in the book, so it's great to hear yeah. her talk about it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> she, Thank you, Elise. She
2: is a source, uh, and um, we've become friends over the course of reporting on this topic. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. I concur with what she has said. And in fact, now, K-Beauty, you mentioned what a huge industry it's become. When I moved to Seoul Obviously, smartphones and Samsung was one of the major exports that I would think of. But now, just as of last year, Korea is now exporting more in cosmetics and cosmetic tools than smartphones. So it's massive. And I think it's actually underreported on by by business mm-hmm. watchers. Oh,
0: wow. Well, and so, Professor Cho, also, I'd love to hear a little bit more about um, kind of the the really interesting relationship between not only the cultural producers that we've been Mm -hmm. talking about, but the the Korean government's Ministry of Culture itself. I mean, it's actively Mm -hmm. supporting the development and spread of these various aspects of Korean culture, right?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, as I was saying earlier, you know, the the lessons that were learned from the economic crisis really led uh, policymakers to think about ways that um, soft power could be cultivated and deployed. Um, going forward as mm-hmm. South Korea became more visible and more of a player in global economics and politics. And so one of the things that the, you know, culture ministry does is it really helps as a kind of mediator or broker to help, um, you know, cultural producers, both K-beauty companies, but also media companies, you know, film producers, television studios, that kind of thing, um, to find, uh find uh, markets to find distributors uh, overseas and so um, I do want to point out though that this is not something that's unique to South Korea. I think most um, most countries have some kind of cultural policy framework and so they'll have you know some government assistance to help the spread of you know their their kind of uh, culturally branded products elsewhere um you know canada has a film council as well just like korea mm-hmm. has its its film council um, and this is actually something that um the 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 state was learning from the u.s um, the 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 fact that the u.s became such a huge superpower in terms of cultural export in the second half of the 20th century so if yeah. you think about Hollywood <laughs> and how it is often <laughs> the dominant source of entertainment and culture in many markets around the world, um, South Korean
0: cultural producers were taking their cues from that. Yeah, completely. And and- I'm so glad you mentioned that. Oh, no, go, go ahead, Elise. I, go ahead. Yeah,
2: and Michelle, as we're talking about this, I'm curious, what made South Korean cultural producers so good at what they do. Mm. And I, I remember just a, a couple of months ago, I was talking with the TikTok CEO who had just been to Seoul and he said, you know, the execution on culture mm. when it comes to dance yes. or v- images, visuals, film, TV, it's just TikTok. It's so much better mm. <laughs> when, when it comes out <laughs> of Korea these days than anywhere else that he's been. how do mm. they get so good at it?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, if we're talking about film and television, um, my, my theory is that, you know, South Korea has itself been a receiving market for content from everywhere. Um, in the latter parts of the 20th century, it was mostly Hollywood, but also Hong Kong, Uh, Japanese popular culture has been really popular as well. Um, and so the absorption of, you know, cultural forms from around the world has created a kind of familiarity with this, uh, with the genres and the story forms and the kind of media forms that um, Korean cultural producers then mix up, remix and re- repackage and then send out into the world with a kind of unique Korean lens on these, these, yeah. these issues. Right. So that's really, I think what Korean um, film has been become very, very um kind of lauded for and also in the, the landscape of Korean TV. Um, but yeah, I also think that part of the answer has to do with the early adoption of um, tech, various technologies, you know, yes. the, the country digitized, um, mm-hmm. you know, comparatively early and very thoroughly um, compared to other places. And so there's just a kind of facility that people have with using technology to create you know, culture of their own.
0: Well, Michelle Cho, assistant professor of East Asian popular cultures at the University of Toronto, joining us today from Seoul, South Korea. Professor Cho, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Thank you. It's been really fun. And Elise, hang on here for just a minute, because there's so much more from your book that I want to explore in the last segment. When we come back, this is On Point. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Just a little heads up on something we're working f- on for Monday of next week. We're going to talk more about our relationships with eating and body image. No matter who you are, no matter where you are, we want to know what did you hear about how your body should look from your friends, your family, from the media, from social media while growing up or even even now? Um, and as you hear more and more about sort of what science, quote unquote, has to say about the path to a, a healthy body, um, and what... Prevents you from absorbing those messages that the scientific evidence seems to show. I really want to know about that too. So tell us your stories, and you can do it a couple of different ways. You can either record a message in the On Point Vox Pop app. And if you don't already have it, just look for On Point Vox Pop wherever you get your apps. Or you can also call us and leave us a voicemail at 617 353. 0683. So that's for next week. Today, Elise Hu joins us. She's a correspondent and host at large for NPR and author of the new book, Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. And I just want to hear a little bit more um, sound from uh, YouTube as one of the primary digital means by which the K-Beauty phenom has been spreading around the world. So here's uh, a couple of people walking through their K-Beauty-inspired skincare routines.
1: Today, I'll walk you through my night routine and show you from cleansing to the actual application process to help you achieve glass skin, no filter, no foundation. In Korean, we say gwa but in
0: English, it's guasha.
1: My standard when I go to bed at night is that if I'm not getting into bed looking like a glazed donut, then I'm not doing the right thing.
0: So that was YouTuber Crystal Lee, Korean model Song Jia, K-pop star Somi, and American model Hailey Bieber. And, Elise, as I listen to those, those voices, um, it really makes something that Professor Cho said just ring even more strongly in my head. And that is that, of course korea was not the first place where um the sort of peddling of unachievable beauty standards right emerged um the united states has been the forefront of um exporting that culture those standards that soft power so i i just wonder if like should we be checking ourselves a little bit about the a the hypocrisy and b the the judgment that we might want to pass on korea now
2: Absolutely. We should check ourselves because increasingly what's happening is a global standard. It is not Mm -hmm. unique to South Korea to have such exacting prescriptions for how we're supposed to look and have such fat phobia. Um, For example, we are now in this national discourse about Ozempic, which is the diabetes drug that is being used off-label, reportedly by celebrities, in order to... Be thinner, And a lot of questions are now arising as to whether, oh, if there are drugs that can help us lose weight, then why shouldn't all of us just take these drugs so that we can be skinny? Because obviously America has an obesity problem. But just as I don't believe that the solution to racism is to make everyone white and the solution to homophobia isn't (laughs) to make everybody straight, I don't think we should address the problem of fat phobia by making everyone skinny. And I don't think we should address the problem of overemphasizing beauty by making everyone conventionally pretty. And so this Mm -hmm. is actually a moment that we should be discussing these topics because scientific and technological developments are making it more and more possible to change our appearance and change our physical bodies. And we should ask ourselves what kind of society we want to live in and what we where we draw the line for ourselves. Because yeah. what South Korea presents is a near future, where because it is such a wired society, there is a feedback loop um, that basically, when you have an interaction with the industry and a company is filling screens and ad time with images of a particular type of face, then customers absorb the image and internalize it as an ideal and then buy the products or get the services or the treatments or the surgeries to resemble those commercial fed images. And South Korea stands out because its plastic surgery market and its plastic surgery industry is the most modern, the most sophisticated, and the most affordable um, in the world. And so when you can avail yourself of all of these procedures to drastically change your appearance, would you? And that's kind of the question Mm -hmm. that being in Seoul presented to me.
0: Yeah, so so I'm really glad you mentioned that because another thing that was truly eye-opening in your book was the the plastic surgery market um, in in South Korea, because it ties a lot of things together that that you write about, you know, the the speed at which digital life is is changing and therefore standards can actually change and people want to look like <laughs> those standards and then like you said, technology and in this case, surgical or medical technology just makes it easier and easier to go to the doctor over and over again to get different types of plastic surgery. So can you tell us a little bit more about the plastic surgery market in South Korea? Who's getting it? How young are they? Uh, You even wrote about how parents give daughters plastic surgery as, as graduation gifts. Yes, and there's discounts if you show up with your
2: evidence that you just took the Korean SAT. So it's so common to get plastic surgery right after you finished your Korean SAT just before college that there is an entire, you know, seasonal discount that's offered at that time of year. Um, South Korea has the most mature and advanced plastic surgery market in the world. No other country comes close It has more plastic surgeons per capita than anywhere else. Um, Brazil is second, the United States is third, but South Korea has four times more plastic surgeons per capita than the U.S. U.S. and other Western surgeons often go to Seoul to actually study and the ways and the innovations of South Korean plastic surgeons. This industry really sprung up and exploded following the Asian financial crisis and around the same time as the You wave that Michelle and, and the two of us were talking about. So um, there is no other market like it. And then the country, the state actually tries to lure visitors in. As medical tourists to get procedures there. So you can go and get a lot of tax-free procedures that are already heavily discounted compared to the United States. And it's a place where everyone can go and get it. You can avail yourself of plastic surgery and procedures. These days, it's a lot more injections and and injectables, Mm -hmm. right? Neurotoxins and fillers, because you can just pop in and pop out. And increasingly men are seeking various procedures that women have been seeking since the late 1990s. You're seeing a huge um, rate or a huge increase in younger demographics, getting neurotoxins earlier as a preventative and, Uh, more and more our bodies are treated as malleable and Uh med spas and plastic surgery clinics are thought of as salons, places where you return to often or at Uh, a regular. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it's so, it, it ranges from everything from you had mentioned the, the desirability of that V line chin. So that requires like shaving off parts of the bone in your jaw, everything from that to, as you said, Botox injections in people's shoulders and calves?
2: I was most su- surprised by this, but then
0: I saw an article in
2: the New York Post saying that uh, <laughs> the very, the hot off-label use of Botox among TikTokers this summer is the traps. So I wrote about, <laughs> several years <laughs> ago, I wrote about how the second most popular place to get Botox injections is actually in the base of your neck at the um, trap muscles, of the trapezius muscles. And it's in order to give the appearance of a longer neck. And the third most popular place are your calves in order to give an appearance of longer legs, because legs are kind of a showpiece for K-pop idol women. You've probably seen the K-pop girl groups. They often have short skirts and short shorts, and those legs are kind of a soft power flex and the 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 surgery seemed or not the surgery the procedure seemed rather absurd to me wow you would get botox at the base of your neck but now it's been labeled or it's been it has a name it's called traptox it is the <laughs> it procedure in the united states uh, a few years behind south korea and so just yet another example of my thesis right that this is the near future yeah. and it's really important to pay attention to because Absolutely. they're showing us where we're going to wind up
0: well so the other thing that I really appreciated about your book is it kind of um helped knock away some presumptions that people might have that come from a really western perspective and and one one of them I'm thinking of at the moment is that uh here is a You know, a a long-standing effort for um, yet another Asian culture to achieve some sort of Western ideal of beauty. But you Mm. write in the book how that's that is not that's actually kind of Western arrogance to presume that because it's not necessarily (laughs) the case that that we're we're talking about beauty standards that are thousands of years old. Yeah, right.
2: It was a colonialist idea in the first place to even assume that Asians wanted to look (laughs) (laughs) Western because the whiteness standard, the white skin standard in um, East Asia predates America as a country. I mean, we are talking about the earliest dynasties prized very fair complexions as evidence of wealth, as evidence of class. And uh, it showed that you were aristocratic and you didn't have to be outside working in the fields. And so we saw this across East Asia, this prize for white skin, even though it would be impossible for laborers, impossible for those who had to work in agriculture, anybody outside to have that porcelain white skin. Um, And so it's an example of how beauty has long been a performance of class and the power that that we can derive from it is often to show our wealth and so i often say now that these days conventionally pretty means conventionally wealthy that you can afford uh-huh. all of the products and procedures and treatments and maybe off-label uses of diet drugs to or diabetes drugs to look a certain way um, and that is marginalizing it's exhausting it leaves an underclass sort of wanting and reaching and I don't think it's desirable for those at the top either who are stuck in this kind of anxious loop of trying to maintain their appearance and maintain these global beauty standards of firmness and thinness and youth, which gets harder and harder to do as you get older. So that's on the whiteness. Yeah. And then and then there's also the idea that the double eyelid was in order to look white. But to a person, those in South Korea are like... No, half of half of Asians have double eyelids. Like why would I be necessarily wanting to look white? Why wouldn't I want to be looking like the other half of Asians? And so so we go into the history of that in the book also.
0: Yeah, but I think it's it's really important to note because again, just shaking us out of our presumptions here a little bit to help us understand like what the how, why this uh, beauty culture has such a grip on on South Korea, and as you keep saying, it's it's pro- it's in our near future as well, no matter where we live. But you know, even though in the course of a radio conversation like this, like you know, your your host as well, what, we kind of tend to. Uh, drift towards the questions that raise a critical lens on anything, but your book mm-hmm. isn't isn't sort of a uniform critique or a polemic against the K beauty industry. I mean, you you talk no. about how, yeah, you talk about how um, personal expression, personal look in Korea itself has often been a means by or at least a few times has been a means through which women have been actually able to express themselves against certain expectations of them. Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah. So there's various archetypes of women throughout Korean history that I do touch on. The modern girl is one of them in the early uh, 1920s. So that's kind of the flapper. We saw the flapper phenom- phenomenon all over the um, uh, the world, actually, and the modern girl is is Korea's take on that. There was also the factory girl in the 1950s and 60s. So I I write about these women and research these women because they were women who were able to use beauty or adornment as a form of revolt, as a form of um, being able to just traverse various class boundaries that otherwise would have kept them in a rigid hierarchy. And so by putting on makeup, by cutting their hair, by looking a a little bit different than how they were expected to work, they were able to challenge the norms of the day. And today, a lot of the folks who are challenging the norms of the day are the ones who aren't doing anything at all, bringing us back Mm -hmm. to the escape the corset women who are saying, we're going to strike, we're not going to take part in this. And this is how we are using our bodily autonomy to show um, and challenge a system that is built on this notion that we're not enough unless we spend money to fix ourselves.
0: Yeah, it's so complicated. So wonderfully complicated, I should say, because I gotta mm-hmm. come clean with, with you about something, Elise. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, <laughs> no, 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 no! I, because you know, we should be we should be critical um, when beauty standards, uh, you know, drive people to uh, not appreciate themselves for who they are, and also towards right. you know un- unhealthy ways of living. I completely, right, right. obviously, that 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 should go without saying. But as I was reading the book, I'm kind of a no-makeup person, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. But everyone also still wants to like look beautiful, to be beautiful, to feel beautiful. So I came at the other end of your book being like, should I try those face masks? Maybe I should look into BB cream. No, that <laughs> I... is an effect that it's had, actually. A lot of
2: folks, especially on the tour, have said... Oh my gosh, now I have gotten those foot peels or now <laughs> or now, you know, and there is kind of this boomerang effect of it and I think that that really exemplifies the paradox within beauty. There is something alluring about it. There is something alluring about the packaging and the products and being able to experiment with them and maybe use them as a vessel for self-expression. And for North Korean women, for example, who I write about in the book, and the trans women who I write about the book in the book, it really is freeing and um, and a way to step deeper into themselves by availing themselves of beauty products. And so ultimately we come at the by the end of the book we come to a question that you can kind of ask yourself is what you're doing, what kind of beauty ritual or product or procedure that you're taking part in a step deeper into yourself? Or is it for somebody else? Is it for somebody else's gaze? And I think asking whether something is ego-driven or soul-driven is a really instructive question to ask.
0: Yeah. Well, the book does a wonderful job of, you know, shedding a lot of light on what you appropriately said earlier is kind of this underreported but deeply important uh, phenomenon going around the world. It brings together economics, politics, history wonderful stories and great voices that you talk to as well so elise hugh the author uh the book is flawless lessons in looks and culture from the k-beauty capital thank you so much for coming on the show elise i've always wanted to talk to you and i appreciate you coming on thank you magna i'm a big fan of yours too i'm magna chakrabarty this is on point